This podcast is brought to you by GoMoto, the service lane kiosk that grows your business. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency? Visit GoMoto.com to learn more. G-O-M-O-T-O.com. Hi, everyone. This is Steve Smith. Welcome to Daily Drive for Tuesday, November 9th. Just how big is the business of vehicle electrification going to be? Neil Ganguly, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's automotive practice, says it's likely tens of billions of dollars when considering the entire value chain, from upstream mining operations and production of batteries to downstream service providers like charging stations, service and repair shops, etc. He's also concerned that the supply chain is not resilient enough today to navigate that growth, and there are a number of factors contributing to that, including upstream risk and sourcing raw materials needed to build batteries, and downstream risks related to the grid's ability to keep up with demand. Building a resilient automotive supply chain capable of supporting the production of vehicles powered by electricity and vehicles powered by gas is complex, but certainly doable. Industries like aerospace and defense are example proof points. Ganguly says investing in technologies that allow for greater visibility throughout the supply chain helps, and that is going to become even more important as competition for certain commodities increases between automakers and suppliers, as well as with other companies and other industries that also need critical materials like semiconductors and batteries. He also believes all of this activity shore up supply chain resiliency will result in increased reshoring and centralization of some companies' global supply chain. What are other supply chain risks companies working in vehicle electrification should be paying attention to? And how can automotive companies best manage two different supply chains, one supplying EVs and one supplying cars powered by gas? We've caught up with FTI Consulting Senior Managing Director, Neil Ganguly. Neil, thanks so much for joining me today on Daily Drive. How are you? Very good. How are you, Steve? Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled. I'm good. I'm glad to have you on the show, my friend. Um, I think we have a very, very exciting conversation today. Lots of conversations about electric vehicles, lots of conversations recently with guests on supply chain. I love that we're going to tackle both topics today in one conversation. So why don't we start with the forecast of electrified transportation? It's going to be a big business. What's FTI's forecast on the EV market? How big of a business are we talking about? Yeah, we're, we're certainly talking about a sizable business here. Now, we don't have a forecast per se, Steve, but uh, I'll, I'll tell you, we certainly have a perspective and share some of the bullish views on adoption, adoption of EVs that you've been, uh, you've been hearing and reading, I'm sure, as, as everybody is, right? If you, if you think about various forecasts, I mean, I've seen you know, them ranging between 15 to 25% of new vehicles have some level of electrification, right, by 2025. And, um, you know, that, that means we're pushing $500 billion on, on market size just on the electric vehicles alone, right, if you just take an average price there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then on top of that, you have the ecosystem of services, charging, um, and, and so on, which is adds on sort of tens of billions of dollars on a market size basis, right? So um, it is a sizable business. And there is going to be, you know, more players than sort of just the OEMs that are taking part in it, as we've as we've talked about before, um, that you know, there's a lot of players that are coming into this ecosystem that are going to be part of this market that are going to drive, uh, you know, the adoption of services in the vehicle. So, 
uh, we're, we're, we're excited about this and looking at it as a, as a large transformation opportunity. You talk about new players. That equates to a different supply chain, a more complex supply chain, upstream, midstream, downstream. Do you think the supply chain is prepared and resilient enough to keep up with this demand and growth in these new players that you're talking about? Um. Look, the supply chains are strained right now, irrespective of vehicle propulsion technologies or, or any industry for that matter, right? So if you, if you set this sort of dislocation aside, right, the supply chain around electric vehicles is, is, is still sort of taking shape and still beginning to form. Um, you know, the, 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 there's a lot of collaboration, there's a lot of partnerships, there's a lot of capital investment that is going into the supply chain. And in, in particular, as, 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 as we all know, the uh, new thing is the battery and everything around the battery, all the way back upstream from the mine, the metals, the materials in the cathode and the anode, right? The battery makers, the cell packing, and then into the tier one and our OEM factories. So there's gonna be a lot of just, you know, even, even along with the battery and materials alone, there's also gonna be a lot of, information service that the supply chain now has to internalize and tackle. So certainly as, as we see the pre the post COVID sort of dislocation ironing out a little bit, um, you know, the supply chain electric vehicles, it, it, it still needs to form. It, it, it's not developed to the extent and mature to the extent, you know, the normal ice vehicle supply chain is of course. Outside of that maturity and the time it's going to take to build and test and likely weather some storms surrounding that EV supply chain, what concerns you most when you think about an electrified supply chain or better said, a supply chain that's helping power electric vehicles? You know, there's a couple of really big concerns here. Um, you know, first, uh, is, is, as, as you probably know, is, is capacity and availability upstream in the value chain. If you think about battery materials and anode and cathode materials both, right? Um, the, the lithium, the cobalt, graphite, you know, these are all number one, um, only available in certain parts of the world. So there's a certain amount of dependence that is going to be inevitable for the auto industry, right? Uh, uh, from, a, from a geopolitical perspective, how that pans out, you're gonna, you're gonna have to think about that. I see that as one of the bigger exposures, right? For example, by 2026 or 27, the global uh, lithium mining capacity is going to be outstripped by the demand of lithium should the adoption and penetration rates of uh, lithium ion batteries driven by vehicles, st energy storage infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, pan out, right? And, and so you, you, can, you can look at a similar story for cobalt, copper, graphite. So the biggest concern for me upstream is, is the capacity and the ability to keep up and how that plays out into the cost equation of the incoming supply, right? Mm -hmm. And the second, um, if you extend that supply chain downstream, right, there's a, there's the concern becomes how does charging infrastructure uh, keep up and how does the electricity grid keep up, right? Because uh, th there's certainly vulnerabilities and weaknesses that we've seen that have been exposed and, um, you know, as the amount of, you know, the charges right now that are operative um, and, and beginning to develop uh, often have subpar performance, the, the charging rates uh, don't, uh, you know, equate to what, 
what's, what, what, what was told, and so on and so forth. So that, will going, that is going to continue to have to evolve um, in terms of the availability and, and, and the safety and the certainty of um, you know, the charging performance. You talk about these new players, and recently on the show, I've been speaking with CEOs of companies that are creating new types of technology. Example, one CEO that I spoke with is invented a 100% replacement from graphite that is manufactured in the state of Washington. Today, most graphite comes from China, and so here you have a situation where you have a new player that is created an alternative for that and and building that in the United States. Uh, Spoke with an individual that is replacing liquid electrolyte inside the um, battery to a solid state. Um, spoke to a CEO that is mining these metals off the seafloor, uh, actually picking them up off the seafloor. So you have companies that are out there, even wireless charging, been speaking to a couple of folks that are, that are bringing in wireless charging technologies, which they see will make, um, charging your vehicle via charging station plug obsolete in the next decade. So where I'm going with all this is to your point of constraints, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How real or how risky is the concern that these new players actually know how to play at that level, can play as a global tier one, you know, that that are offering some of these benefits, but might not have the know-how to work in automotive. Is that something that OEMs and larger tier one established suppliers need to be thinking about if they're thinking about creating partnerships with these new types of emerging companies? Absolutely, Steve. I think that's a that's a that's a very key point you hit on. Is how you know the there's a lot of technologies that are you know taking away lithium cobalt. You know you got silicon carbide batteries. You got you know different kinds. As you mentioned, a couple of them already. Solid state. You know there's also hydrogen and fuel cells and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of technologies and a lot of capital investment, R and D investment going into developing these technologies, right? But the, the two crucial things though. One which one takes shape and, and matures to scale, to be able to scale to the amount of, to, to the volume that the industry requires globally, right? It's going to be a critical issue. You, you, you not only have to prove out these early technologies and nascent technologies, but you've got to be able to scale them in a cost-effective way, you know, to serve the industry, right? So which one of those, uh, one or, or, or which of those technologies can do that? Time will tell, right? We're nowhere near, you know, you know, pointing out and saying, hey, you know, here's the two technologies that are going to ease the lithium and cobalt constraints, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And then the second piece is exactly what you mentioned is, you know, these technologies, they, they're, they're, they're often on a different timeline, different, uh, you know, clock speed, so to speak, right? And, uh, and are certainly not sort of, quote, unquote, uh, familiar with what we call automotive grade, right? So the tier ones and the OEMs, here, I think, have to play a very crucial role of integrator and integrating those technologies and bringing them into the vehicle at scale, right? I, I, I don't think it happens without a very high level of collaboration, right? I also mentioned that, you know, we haven't talked about it, but some of the, a very important aspect that folks will have to talk about and figure out is an extended supply chain visibility from where it stands today. Right. You know, there is going to be so many new factors, so many new technologies coming in and integrating 
so many vulnerabilities that are possible along this extended chain, right? Um, that that we're going to have to think about how you know visibility and predictability can uh, you know can can take shape because uh, it requires cross-tier collaboration and and we haven't seen a whole lot of examples of that yet. We'll be right back with more. Your service check-in process sets the tone for your customer's entire visit. Do your customers wait longer than five minutes to check in for service? Are your advisors presenting upsells to every customer, every time? How often is the opportunity for trade appraisals missed? When your service drive gets busy, these inefficiencies directly impact revenue. Give your customers the option to handle the entire check-in process themselves. From appointment scheduling through final confirmation, all in under two minutes. Customers have the experience they want while selling themselves, which means your advisors are freed up to focus on profit-producing activities. It's a win-win for both CSI and your revenue. Introducing a smarter service lane. GoMoto is the self-service kiosk designed to grow your business. If you're ready to start increasing revenue, improving the customer experience, and maximizing service efficiency today, visit GoMoto.com. That's G-O-M-O-T-O dot com. So speaking of supply chain visibility in supply chain management, talk about how important investing in those types of technologies is to avoiding some of the disruptions that we're seeing primarily, but also to make sure that we're keeping up with demand for EVs and, and not running into inventory shortages. How important is investing in tech supply chain technologies in your view? I, I think, you know, it is, as important as any of the, you know, the bigger people talk about investing in battery technology to improve battery performance, to reduce charging time, um, certainly investing in technologies to make it safer, right? Folks talk about, you know, technologies to, uh, you know, altogether all, 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 all take out sort of, you know, the liquid side of these fed to solid state. I think what is less sort of, uh, you know, uh, gets less of a limelight is this whole supply chain um, visibility, supply chain 4.0 investment, and the requirement to do so right now. Because as you've seen, you know, factories are getting connected, right? Folks are, uh, you know, the, the just-in-time, the disruptions that happened, a lot of folks in the automotive blame it on just-in-time, right? However, it is a system that works. You need to ensure that it's got the sort of visibility and predictability around it and wrapped around it so that you're able to, one, figure out disruptions earlier or preempt them altogether, and Mm -hmm. two, be able to react fast when things do happen. I think, you know, and and the lack thereof of a fast, of of, of a viable sort of supply chain collaboration around uh, supply chain visibility and predictability um, I, I think is going to curtail the ability to react fast and avoid disruptions, number one, either avoid them altogether, or two, 
once it does happen, get over it fast. Because what we're seeing right now, for instance, is, yeah, the supply, the chip, microchip shortage happened. And, you know, folks were saying, hey, three months, six months. Now we're talking about 2023, mm-hmm. right? So the ability to kind of react fast is extremely important in this industry because, um, you know, I don't see a just-in-time, um, you know, technology or just-in-time process, right, being completely antiquated just because the value of the inventory is just too high. Um, and therefore, um, you're going to have to get more visibility. So that begs the question, Neil. Why do we continue to see disruptions in automotive and these extended supply chains when supply chain managements are basically the same principles, regardless of industry? But you compare supply chain management to, let's say, an industry like aerospace and defense, where it has been explained to me that the buyers in those systems know where every bolt is, where it's coming from, when it will will be delivered, et cetera. And largely that is couched on because it's important to national security. If you're a Boeing, if you're a Lockheed, if you whomever and you're building things that are, you know, that are being purchased by the U.S. government, Department of Defense, obviously uh, the reasons why I think are a little bit more clear. But I have to believe the supply chain principles are the same. So why are we seeing a lot or regular disruptions in the automotive supply chain versus other industries that build big complex machines. Now that, that that's a great observation, Steve. Let me, I mean, again, let's set the post COVID supply chain dislocation aside because I mm-hmm. think it has certainly affected every industry, including aerospace. Right now, but to your point is, is what is what, why would aerospace have, sort of a, a leg up, so to speak, when the process is the same and rigorous. I completely agree that the supply chain management, the processes, the tools, the methodologies, they exist, right? And they're, they're adopted to various degrees across various industries. Now, aerospace, you know, the OEMs in, in A&D are, are, they have no choice other than, right, but to know exactly where every part is because, as you said, it's a matter of national security too, you know, it is, you know, uh, so they, they took the they took the national security issue and then, you know, took it upon themselves to create and mandate that visibility through their supply base, right? If you look at what the automotive audience had done over the years is, you know, the more, the, 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 there was a lot of supplier collaboration. There was outsourcing of a lot of production. There was outsourcing a lot of design and and you know, production work on the supply base. And, um, you know, for, for various reasons, it, you know, we, we, we came up with, hey, I am now a, a tier one integrator supplier of, you know, built, designed to build prints, right? Now, the OEM, in certain cases, kept control, right? Automotive OEMs by saying, hey, we're going to direct this buy, we're going to direct the supply. In those cases, there's probably more visibility, there's probably more control. But, you know, there's a large part of the vehicle that is uh, really you know up to the supply chain to to design, produce, and ship, right? As long as as long as the uh, they're they're uh, specced in, um, and that approach I think has created a bit of a, a you know uh, lack of multi-tier rigorous visibility, and um, and and the second thing that then happened was hey when the OEMs do want to 
you know, get visibility, there's a need to share data between multiple levels of suppliers. In aerospace and defense, that's mandated. In automotive, you can't really mandate that, right? Because there's, there's certainly this uh, feeling that the more data you share, the more transparency you share, the more cost pressure and other kinds of pressure the OEMs are going to put on you as a supplier. Um, and so there's some barriers. There's some of these, so to speak, cultural barriers to get over. And, and, and there's really a need to um, come to the realization that you know, cross-tier collaboration is extremely important, um, especially as newer technologies, you know, autonomous, uh, electric, and so on and so forth take shape. Because now you're talking about a, a, a horde of, host of new players that are not necessarily familiar with automotive, right? That you're going to have, you know, you're going to depend heavily on for critical technologies, mm-hmm. um, and um, and therefore do need to absolutely ensure visibility. Well, the other thing that I'd like your point of view on is the fact that the basis of competition is going to change when it comes to semiconductors and it would comes to components that are core to EV batteries, right? Everybody from telecom to consumer electronics to healthcare, they're building things that need semiconductors and building things that use lithium ion batteries. So in addition to management and technology and all and all of this, can you talk about what as an auto manufacturer, as an auto supplier, I ought to be thinking about when I'm not only competing with my crosstown rivals, but also create competing with some massive companies in entirely different industries for these same types of of commodities. Yeah, and, and and absolutely, Stephen. That that competition is not going to go away, right? Not not only will it not go away, it it might it, it it's probably going to intensify. Right, especially Mike. You know, you 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 look at semiconductors. You look at uh, you know battery materials. You look at uh, you know these uh, the chemicals and materials and so on. So, few companies manufacture them, right? So, mm-hmm. two or three things have to happen. I think you you're starting to see a lot of partnership, collaboration, investment, right, into new capacity. That's going to certainly take a lot of time. That's a long term journey. Um, you, 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 you know, you know how many battery plants are slated to go into Europe, driven by Volkswagen. You know, in Germany or, or in in the United States, we're looking at the Detroit. You know, all the uh, Chrysler, G- or not Chrysler, I'm sorry, Stellantis, General Motors, Ford Motor. Everybody's announced collaboration and uh, some kind of an alliance into battery capacity. Right? I think that's going to need to continue, and and working together with these players that hold the production technologies and the critical materials needs to continue. So OEMs have to, and suppliers have to expand their vista of who you collaborate with across the supply chain, right? They're going to have to go almost as deep as upstream as, as, as the mine, even in some cases, which you've seen some, some European OEMs do. The second thing I think that needs to happen is, you know, there's, again, this, this, Automotive is an important end-user industry to these uh, technology or battery companies, right? Because of the sheer volume. Even though, you know, in the chips, it's you say, hey, you know, Apple and um, you know others are, are are obviously bigger customers, but automotive is about 10 to 12 percent of microchip demand, right? And that's not a small number. So uh, again, in the past, what has happened is, you know, the uh, the the tier one integrator had the relationship and, and and the responsibility potentially to source these things, 
um, or maybe the OEM just kind of sourced it and figured out that the uh, or, or, or assumed that the order volume is going to come because you know it's a sourcing agreement. But going forward, I think there has to be a much more hands-on, much more um, you know joint business planning type of uh, uh, relationship here because um, you know the the demands, like I said, from other industries aren't going to go away; they're going to intensify. So. The, the automotive OEMs and tier ones are going to need to manage this much, much, much more um, hands-on and, and, and carefully. Do you think that's going to result in perhaps an increased reshoring and centralization of the global supply chain? You know, what is and, and if that happens, what does that mean for manufacturing jobs in the United States? Yeah, that's, that's, a great, that's a great one. Um, I'll answer it in two parts, right? On, on the one hand, there are some critical materials, right? That you can't really you can't really have a domestic source if you don't have the minerals in the ground. You can't, right? So, the, the two 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 of the things two things that would then spur, um, you know, activity manufacturing, engineering, research activity in the United States, which is very very good for 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 the domestic um, you know for for domestic security of the supply chain in the long term. And um, we are going to see more. The, the, the administration is obviously thinking about, you know, funding this. All the OEMs are funding capacity where you can, right? It's, it's, uh, but, but going deeper and more upstream with battery plants, even with just normal tier one, um, you know, componentry, which was very concentrated in certain countries of the world, Right, the geopolitical environment has started uh, to to really reshape that thinking to say, you know, how much of it should I have as a more stable source of supply domestically or nearshored, right? So we're not going to see. I think we're going to see that uh, continue and accelerate because the cost equation, given the uh, the tariff situation or however it however it progresses from a geopolitical perspective. You're going to see a worsening of a of any kind of cost arbitrage advantage that you have, um, you know, in in Asia and other other you know source concentrated sources of supply right now. They're going to erode on that cost advantage, and then you're going to you also ensure safety and stability. And in in some ways, you can argue right now that battery capacity is a matter of national interest, if not national security, right? Because you're going to have to have that supply chain domestically and reduce dependence on um, you know, uh, China or, or uh, you know, which mm-hmm. which right now controls eighty percent of the battery production in the world. That's going to yeah. have to change. So, I think yes, nearshoring, reshoring is here to stay, and uh, it's gonna it's gonna accelerate if anything else, which is good for jobs in the long term. It's high tech jobs. It's it's certainly uh, you know folks, but but the talent situation. I mean, it has to. There has to be. Uh, a retraining, a rethinking of what kind of talent is necessary, you know, to to foster that 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 manufacturing technology successfully. Certainly, the opportunity is there. Certainly, you know, if if we do take the leadership on electric vehicles and clean energy and infrastructure and all of those things. It certainly means, I think, a lot of jobs in America and I think a lot of opportunity for for U.S. citizens. Neil, thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast, sharing your perspectives on supply chain and electrification and what all that means for automakers and suppliers. I appreciate you spending a few minutes on the show with me today. 
It has been a pleasure, Steve. As you know, always uh, always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, you know th- think through issues that uh, I know both of us find very relevant and um, for the industry and for the country overall. So, pleasure. That's Daily Drive for Tuesday, November 9th. For breaking news, go to autonews.com. And to catch up on all episodes of Daily Drive, go to autonews.com forward slash daily drive. As always, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.